Hey, my name is Julie Leone and this podcast is called What's Your Thing? This is where I have conversations with people about their passions, ideas, pastimes, missions or lifestyle that I find inspiring. I hope you do too. Hey, really sorry that the sound quality on this one isn't brilliant, but the conversation is so interesting. So please persevere. Hey, it's Julie Leone here on another episode of What's Your Thing? And today I'm really excited to have Sophie Lambert here. So Sophie is a literary agent who I first came across a few years ago um, when I was pitching to Into the Woods. And um, he was just someone that got back in touch, which was a nice thing. And the things that I've been following of hers, I'm really, really pleased to have you here. So thank you, Sophie. Well, oh, it's a pleasure. It's lovely to be here. Uh, and your thing, what's your thing? So I, I've always loved stories and books. Ever since I was really small, all I can remember is wanting to lose myself in, in stories. Um, and so uh, as a child, I think I wanted to be an author. I, th- I think I thought that was the sort of obvious place to be. Um, but I never actually found myself writing. And after having, um, after having done English at university, I, uh, like lots of people, didn't know what to do and um, got a job in a bookshop, uh, Turncross Road at the time, at the beginning of the uh, 2000s, was still a really wonderful, thriving street full of lovely bookshops. Um, and I started work at Blackfriars, which, which is now made.com, which is, you know, a furniture shop kind of fills me with a bit of horror. Um, and I soon realised that actually pressing books into people's hands was just a joy and, you know, felt like a real privilege. Um, so I stayed there for about three years and, and then I moved to New York and um, got a job as an assistant at a literary agency. Um, and it was my first office job. I don't think I knew how to type. Um, it was proper thrown in at the deep end, but, um, but what I did find was the thrill of being the first person to open up someone's never shared manuscript um, and, and read it. And that kind of notion of discovering new voices and new talent is still the biggest excitement to me. Um, and, you know, whilst I worked with lots of really established authors, um, the occasional time that you open your inbox and there's something really special and really fresh that speaks to you is, you know, is just extraordinary and it does feel like a real privilege to work with those people every day. Oh, there's so much, so much. I'm just thinking, let's go back to the beginning of the child that um, loved stories. Like, can you remember, was that, so I remember being read to as a child, I was that child mm. too, and what, some stories about your stories and what they meant to you as a girl well I suppose like lots of children um you know I kind of went through sort of little obsessions with series or stories and I remember distinctly and I grew up in South London um but I distinctly remember um loving I suppose I must have been about eight perhaps loving all the Swallows and Amazon series and drawing huge maps 
maps of the islands and imagining, you know, what it must be like. You know, it's just the ultimate escape, isn't it? Mm. And um, so I suppose this is sort of the early 80s. And I just, I didn't really, I didn't really watch much TV. And if I wasn't out doing stuff with friends, then I would be reading, really. And um, I mean, it's the best way of finding empathy and, you know, sort of learning about different people and different ways of life and different ways of thinking. And I think from a really young age, it just, I knew that, I just instinctively knew that. Um, and it felt like a, a sort of an important thing to do and share and want to, want to be part of. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my parents read to me very widely. Um, and I mean, I think that these days, I've got three children and the eldest is 13. And I think these days, children's literature is just far better on the whole than it was. Um, you know, there wasn't much really, I don't think, aimed at kind of nine plus readers in those days beyond kind of, uh, you know, the Narnia series or, or whatever. It wasn't, um, it wasn't as exciting as it is now, I don't think. Um, so quite quickly, I moved on and just sort of read. I was very lucky. The library near me in Sutton was an amazing library. And I just spent my Saturdays going there a lot of the time. Um, and I, I think I read adult books probably from about 12 onwards. Mm. It's funny, you're talking about libraries. So we, um, you know, that, that was what we used to do on a Saturday, go to the library. And that's certainly what my kids, you know, when my kids were young. And it's obviously they're all being shut down, aren't they? They're underfunded. And we've got a thriving mm. library in Oxford Street that's really good. It's a community hub, really important. But it does make me wonder about kind of children of reading. Yeah. Because you also talked about how there wasn't much television or you chose not to watch much television. And, um, you know, that's just something as a, a parent as well. I've been really like, oh, my kids still read, but I'm so glad because it feels like yeah. the odds are against them in a way. Yeah, well, you can't. I mean, I don't think you can force reading on people. I mean, you can try and encourage it and encourage a habit. But I don't think you can force a love of it. And I think you know, lots of people I know had periods in their childhood where they stopped reading or, you know, went away from it and then returned. Um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose my eldest is 13 and she, she still, you know, reads most evenings, um, you know, before going to sleep and so on. And she, she's at that age where now she can read really good adult books and love them. Um, so she's reading Queenie at the moment, which you know, she's very interested as well. Um, so I think, you know, I think teachers and schools are still really encouraging a lot of reading. Um, and certainly, yeah, I mean, I imagine the last 18 months for lots of children would have been desperately frustrating and, you know, having access to books denied on the basis of the pandemic would have been really harmful. Um, and as we know, those who probably have fallen furthest behind are those who probably don't have very much access to books at home. Yeah, certainly that has been a, because um, obviously I work in schools, so that's, um, yeah, we know that, that the people that would have done all right have probably carried on doing all right, and those that were struggling will have struggled some more. Yeah. And I, I suppose it would be, 
some people that I kind of, I don't know many people that would kind of question the value of fiction, but I do, you know, I've heard that argument about, well, what's, you know, what's the point? What's the point of it? Whether mm. they read poetry or, or whether they read Shakespeare. And I kind of know what my answer to that always is. I can argue that quite forcefully. I'm curious about, do you come across that argument and how do you answer that? In terms of the sort of value of it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, firstly, I think any level of reading is to be encouraged, whether it's, you know, the newspaper or Shakespeare or experimental fiction or something that's, you know, I don't really believe in um, sort of the notion of guilty pleasures. I just think any any kind of book should be, if it's something that you love and get something from, then it should just be embraced and encouraged. Um, and in terms of fiction, I think it's, you know, it's always has been a way of people attempting to describe the human condition, really, and that will never change, I don't think. It's storytelling is universal, whether that's oral tradition of storytelling or written. Um, and I think it's a vital part of who we are um, mm. in every culture and country. Mm. Yeah, and how we construct identity, I think. Sometimes I found, you know, when I was reading The Famous Five was my kind of, mm. they were my books as a kid and that sense of, oh, George, I liked George because she was an adventurous one and a sense of, oh, maybe I could be that Ambia girl. Yeah, exactly. At that point, you know, I grew up, I'm older than you. So that was kind of, there weren't that many role models of women that were feisty. Mm, um, definitely. Yes, I think it's, and it's, you know, an, an ability to, to be transported into another person's way of life. And as I said earlier, that kind of empathetic connections, which is so crucial to mm. understanding different people. And um, I guess giving us uh, a sort of breadth of thought and knowledge and um, emotional depth that we otherwise probably wouldn't have. Mm. And then you went off and did an English degree. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, me too. And then I came out and I think nobody really spoke to me about English degree jobs. I don't know. So how yeah. did you get into book selling and did you get any careers guidance about journalism or writing or the book trade or any of that? I don't, um, to be honest, I don't really think that I looked for it. Um, I, I mean, I think the students are a lot, a lot more focused these days than they were um you know perhaps that's part of the fact that they pay such an extraordinary large amount of money for the you know to go to university now um so i don't really remember much of that being about although i'm sure it probably was um and i suppose i after university i went off traveling for a year which was great, obviously. Um, and I think really, you know, most subjects, particularly arts-based subjects, it's 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 more of a sort of um, discipline, isn't it? It's more of a kind of uh, independent learning and ways of approaching things. And I suppose essay writing is all about being able to articulate and formulate strong, tight arguments. Um, and I do, you know, I do really recognise lots of what I learned filtering back through into the sorts of things that I do and the kinds of editorial feedback that I give writers now. So, it's, you know, it's, 
definitely has been very relevant for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I thought I'd quite like to be a journalist for a time being, particularly after traveling. I thought, I know, I'm going to be, you know, an intrepid foreign correspondent or something, um, which I think is probably a terrible lifestyle. <laughs> um, you know, it's not really, it's not really one to kind of couple with family life, is it? Um, so after I'd realized that that, that was either going to be incredibly tough <laughs> to try and break into or just foolish, um, yeah, I think I just thought I'll get a job in a bookshop and then I'll think about what happens really. I don't, I honestly don't think I thought beyond that point. Um, and, and I think I just, I think I just wandered up and down Charing Cross Road and handed my CV into several bookshops and hoped for the best, um, which now seems such a sort of strange way of doing things, maybe. I just don't know. I mean, even when I was there, that happened all the time. We were constantly being, you know, left people's CVs who were walking past the bookshop. Um, but I suppose what I hadn't quite anticipated was that, that, that the bookshop and bookshops then, and probably to some extent now, would be such kind of melting pot of very, very clever people. And I mean, you had a degree at a minimum. Most people, not me, but most people had a master's as well. And they were, you know, real experts in their area at the bookshop. Um, you could get someone to come in and ask for something. There would always be someone who would know. Um, which is wonderful, isn't it? That's a really special thing. So what what started off as a, as a temporary thing really turned into um, something much longer term and much more committed from my end. And I soon um, was appointed as a buyer. So I was the person negotiating with publishers and choosing what the bookshop would stock, which was obviously really fun. Um, and how do you do that? Because that must be really useful for your job now to kind of have definitely. that sense of what sells and what to buy. So and a bit yeah, frightening, really, because, <laughs> you know, well, in those days, um, publishing companies would each have a, a representative, a rep, that would go to each bookshop and, and sell books in, like with a sort of physical catalogue or occasionally a laptop, but more likely a physical catalogue of books. And this would be on a, usually on a monthly basis you'd have each publisher coming in and showing you the book. And, you know, you might sit down for 45 minutes with that publisher and they'd show you 40 books. Well, you know, you, you're never going to spend, you know, more than a couple of minutes, even a couple of seconds on some. So I would quickly know that uh, decisions were made fast and that the publisher had to really carefully think, okay, which titles do I really want to press on Charing Cross Road Blackwell to take. And they might sort of in their mind have thought these three ones are the ones that I want to focus on. Um, so yeah, it's been very helpful because I know what you're up against really. Um, and it's a little bit different now in that um, there are fewer publishing reps because publishers have, have joined forces more. There's fewer of them. Um, and I suspect that a lot of the buying, like particularly at Waterstones, is now centralised. So you have like, you know, probably tiers of shops, um, depending on their size, and they will just automatically receive a number of copies of certain books. Um, but independent bookshops still buy in the same 
in the same sort of way. Mm -hmm. Again, we've got a really thriving independent bookshop, which it kind of everyone was clinging on to through the pandemic and buying from them, not Amazon, just yeah. because they're the sort of shop where you go in and you say, oh, I feel a bit like this. Have you got a book? And they yeah. match you and go, oh, you really like this. And um, and it, that's a, such a different experience, isn't it? From It's almost like bespoke tailoring versus off the peg when you go yeah. to one of the other uh, um, bookshops. And and they do seem to still have clung on, don't they, the independents? I mean, God, well, the independents have actually done really well. Um, and, yeah, like my local shop, which is Dulwich Books, is really, has done really, really well. I think they've had their kind of best, best year. Um, I think the high street sort of chain of Waterstones has, has really suffered. Um, and unfortunately, well, I think it's unfortunately, Amazon has really um, become very dominant. Mm. And the problem with that is that there's just very little discoverability on Amazon. You know, you can't, you don't have the range of new authors. You just can't. So um, lots of books over the last year, which have been published, have really have disappeared which is very sad, you know, and, and, and it's not through sort of fault of the authors or, or even often the publishers, it's actually just circumstance. Um, and um, despite, so bookshop.org, which is a sort of mm. uh, competitor to Amazon, and it links up with the local independent bookshops and it gives them the vast majority of the profit, so it's essentially feeding back and trying to encourage the, the presence of high street bookshops that arrived in the UK at a really opportune moment so that's been able to, to, to sort of give back a lot of money to independence mm. but yeah I mean I think Amazon is probably at least 50% of the market share now and so how do you see that um impacting on what it means so what for me one of the sort of things about being in a library or a bookshop is that tactile being able to yeah. flip, being able to have the conversation saying oh, I love this book is there anything like it so how what do you think it's going to mean for reading the fact that Amazon is so, so mighty yeah I mean it's, I don't think it's very healthy um I think it just means probably more of what's happened over the last 18 months which is a small number of authors doing exceptionally well mm. um is this sort of it used to be sort of as a, like an 80 20 split so 20 percent of the authors making 80 percent of the money and now i think it's probably more like 90 10 um and so yeah you know if you if you find yourself lucky enough to be in a position where you know your book's taken off then actually it, it does really really well and it just keeps on going um but breaking into that Point and becoming visible is really really tough and what does that mean for you as a an agent because that makes your job much harder too doesn't yeah. it yeah yeah so it just means that publishers are much more cautious and they might you know where they might have where an imprint might have bought um i don't know eight debuts a year they might now buy four or something so it's just it means that you have you, you have to be very mindful of the caution that the publishers will exercise and uh, both make sure that everything you send out is in as perfect a state as possible, but also that you're, 
you question everything you take on with the same sort of uh, critical eye that the publisher will have. Um, so I always try and uh, sort of anticipate the questions that a publisher will come to me with and try and answer those before we send it out. Mm. So what sort of questions? Because it's almost like you have to be the agent and then you bring in your buyers. It, you mm. have to be both for your books, don't you? Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's nonfiction, um, you know, whether it's a memoir or uh, narrative nonfiction, you know, what's different about this? Why is it the right time to publish it? Why is this the right time to, to sell this? Why, what, what kind of profile has this person got? Um, if it's fiction, it's, you know, what kind of titles would you see this sitting alongside? How have those titles done? Um, is this it does it feel like a sort of fresh uh, version of something um, because it's this it's this very fine balance between something that feels um, familiar but also different enough mm. without feeling so sort of out on a limb that you can't en envisage anybody necessarily being drawn to it um, and there are some genres which are just notoriously hard like you know if you're writing comedy or satire it's just so hard to sell those sorts of books um and at the moment i suppose there's a really big trend for um i suppose sort of slightly emotionally removed young female characters um you know some of which i think are brilliant like um sorrow and bliss which is doing really well at the moment um but yes, yeah, so you just have to be very aware of all those things. And you mentioned there something about author profile, and that is almost a self-perpetuating circle, oh. isn't it? Because if you've got the profile, you're going to get it. And if, how does someone who, because um, obviously there's lots of celebrities, isn't there, who have their celebrity chef or their celebrity footballer, where, and you're never even sure whether they've written it or it's been posted. Yeah. So how does somebody with a fantastic story but no profile, you know, do they stand a chance at all? So if it's memoir, do you mean? or No, or well, I'm so let's go fiction on that one. So if there was... Well, fiction, you, really you, don't, you, don't, you don't really need a profile for fiction, you know. I mean, the sort of, there's a few celebrities who write fiction, you know, some of whom genuinely do and can do a really good job with it. Um, you know, the Richard Osman books have done unbelievably well and you know I think he's worked really hard at them um Ruth Jones the same um but fiction on the whole doesn't really rely on the profile um I mean it's helpful if you're sort of in a in a writerly group but to be honest I don't think it's it's not that significant um with non-fiction it's I mean if it's if it's if it's about the writing then it will be about the writing but I do see that the non-fiction charts are quite dominated by celebrity-fronted books, whether it's like a health book or a diet book or a food book or a lifestyle book or a parenting book. So that kind of side of, of non-fiction. So it's not, again, that, that sort of non-fiction, it's not about the writing. It's about, um, I suppose, either being inspiring or uh, almost practical. Mm. that has been I think there's been a sort of resurgence in, in popularity um what's less popular than it was 10 15 years ago is the celebrity autobiography 
which used to sort of just be packing all the shops with, you know, 15, 20 of them each each Christmas. And that's not that's not as much um, the case at the moment. Hmm, it's interesting how the trends change. Mm. Did you notice a change in what people were reading during the pandemic? Um, well, I suppose it's just like I said earlier, it's sort of heightened the um, the issue about discoverability. And I think a lot of people were going for sort of comfort reads or yeah. whether it was crime or, or just something that was, I suppose, fairly light. So I think literary fiction suffered quite a lot. Mm. Um, and I mean, people went back to old favourites. So it was sort of brands. Of existing names did really really well, and actually, mm. I think what publishers found was that the backlist titles, so the titles published some time ago, they were the ones that did did better than expected. Mm, that's so interesting because I went back and reread Little Women and Sixty Four Charing Cross Road and Narnia and The Wizard yeah. of Mercy and all of that. It was kind of like comfort food for the yeah soul and Maggie yeah. got me Maggie O'Farrell's Hamlet and I mm-hmm. which I really wanted but I opened it and I just thought I can't read this it's that plague <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true sitting in my bedside cabinet you know I love her work but mm. I just hadn't even thought it through yeah yeah yeah. yeah 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 so yeah so for, for me books have always been like that companion you know through and and you know, when I look at my bookshelves and people say, why are we, it's like, because they're each representative of mm. different part of life. So it's Definitely. very personal, isn't it? Whether you're selling a book to someone that's personal or whether you're representing someone who's written something which inevitably is personal. So how, yeah. how do you, it's a very tender process, isn't it? So how do you work with that whilst also having to be really business savvy and mm. market? Well, I think when you take on a new writer, you know, you always make it clear that the likelihood is, is that there will be editorial work involved. And um, as I said earlier, you, to give a book and a writer the best chance, you, you've got to put in that work up front and do editorial work yourself as an agent, um, when it, particularly when it's a debut. And I think it just all stems from having a shared vision for the book as a whole. So it's got to come from you believing in the same thing. And, you know, it's, it's such a, it's a job that's really founded on, on relationships. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in normal, normal life, um, we'd want to, to have most meetings in person because they're so much more meaningful. Um, so nearly always, I would, unless someone's, you know, in another country or unable to travel, I'd want to try and try and have that initial meeting in person, um, because it's then that you establish, you know, what you both see it as, you know, what you want this book to be, what you want someone to take from it. Um, and you know, look, occasionally a book will come across my desk or in my inbox that's just so dazzling that I don't really even need to ask those questions to some extent but most of the time you know there's there's something that needs to be discussed so, but it's something that you do together it's very much mm. a, a collaborative thing mm. and so you've been doing that over zoom have you like everybody yeah else. Yeah. yeah so how's it I mean, been how's that been well I mean I just think it's awful really um because 
it just doesn't feel very natural. Um, and uh, I think, I think you know, I think most of us just have the same issue, really. It's, it's when, when we get stuff into the editing, that can be done really from home and that's quite easy. Um, but lots of the, the ideas and the sharing that would normally happen in the office, it just hasn't. And you can't be spontaneous. You know, you can't do the equivalent of sticking your head around someone's office and saying, have you read this? What do you think about that? What's that editor buying? What's your experience like with X and Y? And I think everybody suffers mm. with that. Um, and I think probably authors have felt more um, isolated, really, I suspect, because, you know, they've not been meeting up with their agents or editors, probably not been meeting up with many other authors. It just, I think people have just felt quite isolated mm. and alone, really, um, mm. like they have across most industries. Um, but even though, you know, people would would think that writing is quite a solitary process, a lot of it actually is quite sociable. Mm. And, and it's almost like been too much time alone or not enough time alone because mm. we've had kids at home and, you know, partners mm. at home. And, and so actually in other ways, there's been much less, yeah, very much so. Headspace, yeah. hasn't there? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm guessing. So you went over to America. So that's quite a big step, is it, from a book? Mm. Did, you, did you know what you were going to do in America? Did you have it all lined up or did you just run No, up? no. So my um, my well, boyfriend at the time, husband now, he phoned me up one day. I was at Blackwell doing a stock check and said, oh, I've just been offered a job transfer to go to New York if we get married you can go as well so I just thought why not you know um it's good it's good to you know imagine being that spontaneous now um and yes yeah, so I found myself in New York and I didn't really have a, a sense of how to get a job there either um but I just I don't know I suppose I just again kind of brazenly sent out CVs and so on and I think really I got a job on the basis of just having an English accent and <laughs> and and literary agencies liking an English accent on the other end of the telephone. And and you got married. Did you get married together? Yeah, we did, we did. Yeah, yeah. So which is again kind of like, wow, what is so it's almost like book tied up with your <laughs> Yeah, I guess yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean like, you know, we were together, so it's not not like Yeah. I don't know, I think. You can do these things quite quickly if you want. <laughs> not, I, I don't know. I, I think I think you can make things like a wedding as stressful as you want it to be. Really, to be honest. I mean, we had a really big party and organised it in a week or two. So. Mm. Mm. It's all possible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where, so what did you get from your experience in America that you know stands out for you? What you know, because I'm guessing although it's the same business, different country. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, obviously reading habits are very slightly different, but broadly it's a very, very similar process as here. Um, it's bigger, obviously the market's much bigger, it's five times the size, so, you know, it can be really lucrative there um, in a way that is, is far less common in the UK. Um, I think, I, I suppose from my own personal perspective, I was just, it was, 
it was such a different world of work I was being thrown into. It was like a kind of really steep learning curve in the best possible way. Um, and providing you don't feel like you're completely sinking, it's good, isn't it, to be thrown in to new situations. Um, and I, I just really loved, you know, the, the combination of working with the agents who had all this experience and then reading work by new writers. Um, and, and that, I suppose that, you know, that continues however many years on. Um, I think in, in, certainly, I mean, it may have changed, it's been nearly 15 years, but um, in the States, it was it was more um, there was a sort of more of a separation between work and, and home, um, in the sense that people wouldn't really socialise outside work so much. Whereas the publishing industry here in London is really sociable, quite kind of incestuous in the nicest possible way. Um, you know, there's a lot of social things, or you know, becoming lots of my friends are, are whether they're editors or other agents um, in publishing. I think that's a bit less the case there um and i don't know i suppose there's maybe a bit more of a sort of seriousness to it not not that it's not serious here at all but i think it's um maybe there's just a bit less fun <laughs> um and you you talked about Kind of that incestuous so i know you've published a book by catherine Clo, who herself is um an she's agent, an agent yeah so how was that working having an author who was an agent um well catherine was just amazing because she's an extraordinary writer i mean it was her first book it was a memoir so it was very very personal um and it's about having had um postpartum psychosis which is mm. just terrifying um uh, uh, to be honest she she was you know just she took everything on board incredibly well so we did work editorially quite closely um and I think it was a very different experience than being on the other side I'm sure if I ever wrote something and, and received feedback I would you know feel similarly it was um I think she quite enjoyed it well I hope so anyway mm -hmm. um and but yeah obviously it felt like a sort of extra um uh i guess an extra level of responsibility mm. to, to mm. be working with her mm. uh, and how did you said that when stuff crosses your desk and you know it like is it an instant knowing a sort of falling in love or is it you know how do you know yeah i mean it's always so subjective isn't it and what one person loves is going to be different from the next and you know some years you might love the Booker Prize winner and other years you just don't, don't fall for it so it's never I feel like there's never a kind of right or wrong um it's just a, a personal thing but I'm really I don't know voice for me which I know is such a kind of broad term but when someone presents a new voice that makes you feel like you're being introduced to a different world or character it's just very special um i don't know i picked like I, I about um two years ago three chapters of a memoir came into my inbox and um i i knew within about paragraph that i just 
have to represent it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's being published uh, in January. It's amazing, absolutely incredible memoir called Original Sin. Um, and it was just, yeah, just the writing, you know, it's always just the writing really, isn't it? Um, and I think similarly, when I first read Nathan Filer's The Shock of the Fall, that was just, again, about a voice or Guy Gunaratne's in our Mad and Furious City. It was just a voice that demanded to be read, really. So when you describe that, it's almost like a visceral, um, mm. like you hear it and it's, you have a, I don't know, a non-linear response to it. Mm. Some sort. Yeah, I guess you're just, well, you know, there are plenty of books that are good, but that you feel quite distracted. You can feel distracted, you know, by something else whilst you're reading, whereas others that you just, you just want to be there. Mm. And that's the best, isn't it? And if you, I suppose that some of that trusting your gut, do you think you've always had that or has that developed as your career? I think you developed? become, well, I think you, you learn to trust your instincts, I think, as, you, as your career develops. Um, and as I say, you know, there'll be, there'll be plenty of things that I've said no to that are really great and that go on and, you know, are published and do well. But it just, I just wouldn't have been the right champion. Um, and and likewise, you know, there, I'm sure there are things that I've taken on that other people have turned down and, and mm. I've been the right champion for. So it is deeply personal. Um, but, and I think, I, I think you, I probably get quicker over time at knowing what I do and don't like, um, or what I'm, rather what I'm good at working with. Mm. Mm. I just I was just thinking then it's a bit like you know which clothes fit you in and which don't what style yeah exactly you know, and okay exactly. it changes a bit when you've given birth <laughs> you have yeah. to readjust yourself yeah. but once you've kind of made that adjustment yeah like, this shop not that shop this style yeah so it sounds a bit like that is it yeah I think that's true yeah you just and then but at the same time I like I like being pulled out of my comfort zone as well because part of the joy of the job is to be really intellectually stimulated the whole time and work with fascinating clever people so you know I'm often on the lookout for something a bit different but that that I can still feel as though I can add to you know I need to feel like I can if it's if it's work that it needs that it's work that I know how to go about doing mm -hmm. Mm. Um, because if I don't, then I'm not, I'm not going to be the best advocate at all. And so it sounds like you really, because not all agents get involved in the editing process, do they? So no. How, just tell me a bit more about how you do that and how you feel about that part of your job. Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a really satisfying part of the job. Um, and yeah, I think if you're, especially if you're working on something so there's sort of two sides really there's there's fiction and it might be that someone sends you a draft of a novel and you you can see the potential but feel like it you know it still needs quite a bit of work and that um you know you might go over three four drafts with someone before you send it out um and that might be from very broad strokes of character development or narrative arc through to line edits. Um, or if it's a non-fiction project, we, we tend to sell those 
projects to publishers on a proposal, so it's not a finished book. Um, and those I might work with an author on from, you know, the kernel of an idea. So like Christy Watson's The Language of Kindness, you know, we grew that from just a chat in, in my office and just went over different sort of iterations. So you'll be heavily involved in structure, in um, the writing of that, I mean, not literally the writing of it, but just you'll see it through from the beginning. Um, mm. And it's really satisfying. It's really exciting to see those things grow. Um, and again, you have to come at it with a, 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 an end sort of idea in mind. So with Christy, we just knew we wanted it to be a sort of, let me take you by the hand and pull you into a hospital and show you what being a nurse is like. And the structure is, you know, each chapter is a different place. And over the course of the book, you build up a, a clear sense of what the, the whole is like, the world of the hospital, so to speak. Mm. So that sounds like a really creative part of what you do, mm. where that bit of you that maybe wanted to be a writer can come in. Yeah, maybe. I think it's, I think it's, it is creative, but it's also, um, I guess I would think it actually uses more of what I learned as a, a student of literature, which was a sort of analytical eye and an ability to form argument. And that's invaluable, um, whether it's offering editorial feedback and trying to think about why something's not working and what kind of answers there could be, or putting together non-fiction proposals and um yeah figuring out really what the intention of the book is mm. and why that's important mm. and, and what difference have ebooks and self-publishing made to your your work and your industry um well ebooks are always you know that's not an issue at all that's just another way of, of, of reading um, and it's sort of remained really steady. I think there was a time when people were terrified that, you know, that was it, paperbacks or whatever. But it's not at all. It's remained very steady. It's, you know, depending on the kind of book, some, some books, like commercial fiction, it might be the majority of sales are ebooks. Um, but literary fiction and nonfiction, it's, it's maybe sometimes 10% or 20%. It's not huge. Um, and it's always that all publishers want to buy ebook rights at the same time as, sorry, there's a very loud helicopter. Um, all publishers want to buy ebook rights at the same time as buying, you know, the physical and audio. So you have to sell everything together mm. to a publisher, and they always publish simultaneously. Um, and self publishing. Well, the thing is, it, it doesn't really make a difference because unless you're unless you're self-publishing something which taps into um, uh, an already sort of thriving online um, uh, group like um, fantasy fiction or like erotic fiction, those sorts of quite sort of niche areas, which which can really thrive online and um, those sort of fan groups can generate lots of um, sales. You know, it's it's not going to eat into traditional publishing at all because it's 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 like 
the extreme version of the problem of discoverability. If you're publishing, self-publishing a novel, you know, quite honestly, unless you spend an absolute fortune on um, publicity and marketing, it's not going to be discovered. Mm. Um, unless, unless you tap into those groups and you fall into like genre fiction. Yeah. If you're writing literary fiction, it's, it's very, 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 very mm. hard. Because I guess the big one a while ago was um, was it Fifty Shades of Grey that came up that way, didn't it? And everyone yeah. was like, "Oh, that's." And then she got taken on by the main publishers. And yeah. so what you're saying is that that's almost like a false story. You know that that's the anomaly, the outlier for that to happen. Well, it's definitely the anomaly, but it also was part of that. You know, it was it was a niche genre that does thrive online um, because it's basically like erotica. Mm. and it made it kind of went into the mainstream which was the sort of bit that was interesting but um but she because of what she was writing she was able to generate a level of success before being taken on mm. but that's not unless you're writing in those areas it's difficult mm. so those areas would tend to be fantasy fiction to a lesser extent science fiction and erotica or romance mm. Mm. It's just such a, a different, a different world, I suppose. That kind of where where anyone can publish anything, can't they? And yeah. for their own audiences, so people have their own little micro audiences. That yeah, they, they sell. To, yeah, which means yeah. certain needs, isn't it? But it's not the world that you're in. Um, no, it's totally different. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't really. I mean, look, you know, it's not that I would be. I'd absolutely very open-minded to have submissions by people who have self-published work but it's not it wouldn't it doesn't sort of it's not an added bonus put it that way mm -hmm. how do you think publishing will change you know go you know when you look ahead do you think it's going to change um, or how has it changed well i think the big the big problem is just this problem of discoverability and the retail side of things narrowing because of online dominance um and the impact has on publishers and being cautious mm. so I think that probably will continue um so I think that publishers will sort of say okay you know we'll buy a smaller number and put more behind them so that there's more likelihood of each one being successful mm. and it means that there's room for the independent publishers to then you know publish in a slightly different way um, and as we've seen over the many years, you know, prizes are often dominated by independent publishers. Mm -hmm. And do you as an agent get involved with the independent publishers? Yeah, definitely. Because they, I mean, they range from like big independents like Faber, um, or Canongate or Granta to, you know, smaller independents like Pushkin Press or, or you know, Galley Beggar Press and so on. So definitely we do. I mean, they're, they're kind of, there then is a tier of publishers which probably agents wouldn't be involved with because there's absolutely no financial benefit mm. to authors and therefore it's a it's you know it's all of publishing is a business as well mm. and as romantic as it might feel to think it's just about sharing good stories clearly it's also about a livelihood for authors mm. and publishing yeah so you know you you wouldn't be able to as an agent exist if you were just sort of making arrangements between an author and a publisher who 
take no advance, you know, that's just not mm. feasible. And since we, you know, we might work for months or even years sometimes with an author before getting any commission because you only get commission when you've sold a book for someone uh, on their behalf. So, um, yeah, it's a kind of strange. It's, it's, it's massive, isn't it? Yeah. It's a massive, like when you were talking before about the process of discussion and how should we build the book and mm. that, you know, that's a year, month, isn't it? Um, yeah, you take your time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, you don't, and, until you've sort of made a deal on someone's behalf, they should never be paying you. So very occasionally we'll hear about agencies that charge authors to do work and that, that shouldn't ever be the case. Ah. So, so what are the other things that authors need to know that maybe they wouldn't know if they're approaching agents for the first time or publishers for the first time? Well, so most big publishers won't take unsolicited um, uh, books or, or manuscripts. So that means that they need to come through an agent. Um, you know, occasionally publishers will have open window space and open submission like a month or two weeks or a week. Um, but on the whole, you know, I'd say 95% of what they publish is agented. Um, and, uh, and, and that's different for very small independents, which don't require an agent. Um, but yeah, so I suppose on the first hand, you've got publishers which probably you're not going to have a, you know, you're not, you're not going to just send off a manuscript to Penguin Random House. It just wouldn't work. Um, and agents always anticipate authors simultaneously submitting to lots of different agents. That's absolutely fine, not a problem. Um, it's always just good to keep whoever you're submitting up to date with, you know, if someone else is. is um, asked for a meeting or, or really enjoyed something um, and I think the main thing is you know just to make sure that you send your work if you're thinking about submitting work to send it when it's at its best mm. there'll always be room for more and better but it's it's really unwise to send off to an agent thinking probably could do a bit better than that because then you're just not doing yourself Mm. You know, we're inundated we get tens of manuscripts most days and you know if your if yours isn't standoutish then it will just be passed um so i think it's just you know if you're a writer do take advantage of other people reading your work as well lots of authors are in writer groups or you know have a and so on so there's lots of things you can do to try and make that as as possible as, as, mm. as it can be. Uh, how much of your day do you actually spend just reading? Um, it really differs. I mean, it's a sort of boring answer, but no day is the same. So, you know, some days you might spend a really large portion of it reading. Um, and some days you might not, you might just have too many meetings and emails and so on. Um, but, you know, it's not, a, it's not a nine to five job at all it's a kind of 24-hour job and um you like i don't really know agents who have proper weekends or evenings or you know it's just you, you you've got to get your work done when when you can really and it is very time consuming 
so you definitely have to like it yeah 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 so that fantasy of being paid to read you're saying well actually yeah and <laughs> and there's all the other the paid to read the reading that usually is at night most people yeah hmm. which is when I normally fall asleep when I'm reading how <laughs> did because you've done it with children haven't you son how on earth did you do it when the children were young yeah I mean I've still got so my youngest has just turned four yesterday in fact um oh. but uh I don't know, you don't get much time for yourself, really. Um, certainly the last year and a half, none. Um, the, the, main, the main issue really is that you don't have time to read for pleasure very much. And actually that is an issue because you have to be aware of what's going on in the market and what's working and you know, so on. So I use holidays for that, really, I suppose. I just try and take a bunch of books that I've been meaning to read and whip through mm. them um and it's is helpful to be a really fast reader yeah 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 and are you a paperback or a, a kindle person oh i would never read for pleasure on a kindle no. um i mean i like partly because um especially over the last year or so i've had to read all my manuscripts on my laptop or on a device so it's the last thing i want to do yeah um, so no i would always go into a bookshop buy a book and read it. You know? There's nothing better, is it? And I, even that cell, um, thumb cream, God, if we ever yeah. get any on, on your book, it's like, and I, do you write with a pencil? Do you read with a pencil? I can't, I think that's- What, for pleasure? Look. Yeah. No. Not no. even non-fiction? No, no. Ah. I just, I want to be away from that side of my job, really, if I'm reading for pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. And when people are submitting to you, like the, one of the horrible things whenever I've had to do it is that yeah. one way the synopsis is a nightmare, but also the covering letter. It's yeah. like, and there's so much advice online of do this, don't do that, do this, do that. You know, any cock tips? Well, so, I mean, all publishers, oh, sorry, all agencies now have really good um, websites. So, you know, I think it's very, very worthwhile doing all that homework on who to send to, what they're like, you know, reading interviews, listening to things, um, and make it a bit personal. I mean, not too personal, you don't you know, scare someone off, but then needs, you, as an agent, as I said, you are inundated. And so you want, you want to know why someone's chosen to submit their work to you. So it might be, oh, I loved X or Y that you represent, or, you know, I see that you're really interested in such and such. So just make it feel like you've done a bit of background work. Mm. Um, you know, there are a huge number of people who still submit to Dear Sarah or Madam. And you just think, I just delete them straight away because if they can't be bothered to even think about who they're sending to, mm. it doesn't, it's not a very good representation of them or their work. Um, and I think it's just, you know, a fine balance of, not of being confident and being succinct about what it is that you're writing and what you want someone to take from it whilst at the same time not saying oh this you've, you've never read anything like it this is the best thing in the whole world and again lots of people do that they don't um, <laughs> yeah I mean you can quite easily filter those people out because you just think hmm, problem um <laughs> but yeah so I think and and I, I think it's very very helpful to add in 
some comparison titles or authors. And really it's a kind of shortcut. It's a way of, um, it's a way of a, a potential agent envisaging where it would sit on a book page, and who, who might read it. And, um, and sometimes an author has a very different idea in mind from other people who have read it. But yeah. it's still really useful to know where you as a writer think your work sits. Yeah. Um, and, and occasionally people will sort of go, mm, it's not really like anything else. And actually that is a bit problematic because then you think, well, that's probably what I'll think and the publisher will think. And if it's not like anything else because it's just so standout, brilliant, then fine. But that's probably just because you know, you're, you've got a character or voice that feels different, but, you know, very little is truly unique, yeah, which is obviously, yeah. a, it, you know, that's just, we all, we all take on parts of everything we read and watch and see and hear and so on. Um, but it is useful to have those comp titles. Mm -hmm. And how do you think in the literary agent has changed you? You know, like if one of those, if you look at the other paths that you might have gone down, mm. what, yeah, um, what does it mean to be you as an agent? Uh, well, I think I get to have a lot of, you know, really valuable life-changing relationships with, with writers. So that's probably up there. Um, it's immensely satisfying to have these long-term relationships and to see writers grow and work with them. And, you know, it's a sort of overused term, but I really do feel like it's a privilege to work with them. Um, I think I'm definitely like older <laughs> aged more, um, probably less sleep. Um, uh, I think it's, you know, it's a kind of, it's it's a really lovely industry to work in. Uh, it is really competitive. Um, you do have to work very hard, but the payoffs are, you know, huge on a sort of personal and professional level. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do anything else personally. Um, I might want you know just a little bit of time off now and again. Um, but you know, that's a sort of that's that's juggling young children as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In life. And is there anything as we start to come to the end of this? Is there anything that I should have asked that you know? Is there a hole that you think oh, I thought she was going to ask about that? That's so obvious that I've missed. Hmm. I mean, no. I mean, I don't. I don't think so. I think that. Um, I think that it's just it's it's a real pleasure to work in a field that you love and lots of people aren't lucky enough to do that and I really acknowledge that um that you know there is this kind of modern idea I guess that all work is fulfilling and that all work is should be enjoyable mm. and every every job has parts of it that are not enjoyable um but there are many many people most people probably who every day do something that they'd probably rather not do mm. but it's a means to you know to to an end so to speak um and it's a necessity isn't it in our society mm. for most people and so I, I do feel really fortunate that almost all the time I love what I do mm. um and I know that and I don't take that for granted and 
I, I think it's important to acknowledge, really, um, and something that's quite often overlooked and that the, sort of the media often just focus on people with fulfilling careers and successful careers. And a lot of people's careers and livelihoods are based on, you know, either monotonous jobs or jobs mm. that aren't sort of personally fulfilling and so on. Um, it doesn't make them less worthwhile or, or anything like that, but they're just not focused on. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I suppose, I think, in a, in a way, some of those lives are the lives that I want to read about as well. You know, whether that's like Christy Watson being a nurse or like I've just taken on a prison officer who happens to be a brilliant writer. But, um, I guess as we move forwards through hopefully this, you know, pandemic period, we won't move into a time which is even that has even greater disparity and that we sort of need to think about just um yeah not just like people like me who have a lovely time reading and editing and selling people's work but people who are doing other jobs that um are less are less kind of newsworthy I suppose mm. um so that's not really that's kind of a long-winded way of saying you know I'm kind of grateful for doing what I do. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that really it needs to be readdressed, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, and I think the thing that stands out for me in lots of what you said is the relational piece. And I suppose I hadn't seen that so clearly that the kind of um, it's, it's like a committed long-term relationship where you're yes. investing a lot up front before you. Yeah. And I guess that trust you've got the trust that they're going to do the work and they're going to respond to your feedback and they've got the trust that you've got their best interests at heart you know it's all that hard to measure mm. stuff isn't it that, totally um I suppose I hadn't understood before and I <laughs> love the fact that you know that the nurse book I was kind of reading about earlier today but prison guard you just say oh I'd love to know what goes on <laughs> you know I'd love to know what goes on inside of those places and yeah I wonder whether, because the pandemic and, you know, everyone's standing clapping at eight o'clock and that was for the NHS. But I think we all appreciated our shop assistants and our refuse mm. collectors and our, you know, but um, I suppose from my point of view, I, you know, would hope that some of what we start to become aware of is the stuff that's maybe been invisible. Yeah, that exactly. Taken for granted. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a sort of, you know that's the thing isn't it it's a potential moment of change in society um and it would be really nice to think that that was actually a possibility yeah um rather than it polarizing people yeah. even more yeah a systems tipping point and i think publishing can be part of that can't it mm, i'd like to hope so mm. i mean because i know you're very good at your sustainable you know there's a lot of sustainable books now isn't there from sustainable sources but it is actually yeah. get, you know there's a lot of yeah, getting minority voices out there exactly and, and yeah perspectives isn't it definitely so, yeah and there's a lot of work still to be done but I think it can you know you can feel as though there's a there's a part anyway yeah I didn't realize one of the things I realized during lockdown that um you know Walden was you know Walden isn't it by um yeah. Emerson yeah that, that, that influenced not only um Gandhi but influenced Nelson Mandela as well and you just think oh you know the power of the book you know exactly exactly Frankel's man's search for meaning oh yeah you know, it's a thin book but actually massive 
massive ripples. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really special, isn't it? Yeah, really. So is there anything that you've heard yourself say in this conversation that you want to remember for you because it's interesting or useful or just something that you hadn't thought of before? Um, well, I suppose it's just, it's nice. It's nice. Um, it's nice sort of taking time, isn't it, to reflect on how you came to be where you are. And, um, and I suppose what strikes me, which is quite funny to admit, really, is um, I think I just relied on a sort of strange level of uh, inner self-belief or confidence that things were going to happen. And, you know, whether that's, you know, walking down Charing Road, slinging CVs at bookshops or just, you know, arriving in New York with no job or setting up a, a list with no, you know, prior experience. I, I suppose that's quite a nice thing to take away, really. Um, but, you know, probably not, probably not choices that people, most people would advise other people to do, but that maybe risk taking is something to, to some extent be applauded. Hmm. And I'm always curious, and it's kind of a different conversation about at one level it was a risk because maybe it made no logical cognitive sense but what you've very much spoken about is a that intuitive you know being you in intuitively knew that's what the next mm. was and you intuitively know when you pick up a text that this is it and this yeah. is that you can work with so I don't know I think it's all about what we what we understand is you know our information system and it sounds like you're also kind of working literally and emotionally yeah. as well as just cognitively so yeah maybe, I think that's true yeah interesting interesting it's been really lovely thank you so much Sophie oh it's a pleasure it's been lovely to chat good and thank you for your time then I know what's, what's no no it's, it really is a pleasure and um hopefully a bit interesting for people yeah no really really interesting really really lovely so thanks very much Sophie Lambert I'm gonna stop recording now bye 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 Hey, it's Julie here and I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, I'd love to hear from you too if you've got a thing or a way of living or a passion that just lights you up and fills you with energy. So please do get in touch at julieleone.com if you fancy a conversation or if you're listening to this thinking, ah, I wish I could find a thing or a way of living that lights me up and fills me with energy, then get in touch and we can have a conversation about coaching or some of the ways that I might be able to support you in finding that. So all of that is at www.julieleone.com go to the contact page and drop me a note you can also see some of my books writing and coaching there um, if you've enjoyed the podcast please share it with your friends like subscribe and review it just so that other people can find it and just pick up on some of those happy vibes um, but it, thank you for joining me it's always a pleasure to do the podcast and hopefully you find something positive from them for listening to so take care speak soon see you on the next episode Thank you.